November 7th, 2019. Welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, the University of Texas at San Antonio's neurobiology podcast. I'm your host, Salma Qureshi. So today we've got Ajay Taka. Hi, Ajay. Hi. Is it Ajay or is it Ajay? Ajay. Ajay. Either way works. Okay. You say it wrong all the time. Okay, because I say Ajay, but you just said, you had just said Ajay. No, I grew up in the States. Yeah. Well, I'm in the know of the same people. Um, So, Ajay is associate professor in the Department of Biological Structure at the University of Washington School of Medicine in Seattle. That's right. Was that right? Department of Biological Structure. That's right. That's an interesting... Historically an anatomy department. I see. That makes sense. Yeah. But now we're mostly a neuroscience department. Got it. Okay. His lab studies the molecular basis of somatosensory perception using novel tools and techniques in combination with mouse genetics, molecular biology, biochemistry, and live cell imaging. His recent work looks at intersections and peripheral pathways that mediate pain and itch sensation using zebrafish larvae as a model system. Actually, not just peripheral pathways. I mean, in general, neural pathways. Yeah, I guess. So uh, today we've got a cozy group. It's just uh, me and Ajay and Lindsay McPherson. Hello. Hey. So by way of intro, can you talk to us about why the sensations of itch and pain have historically been considered so closely related, and just also in terms of like the general theories of, of how we think they're coded in the nervous system? That is a good question. Yeah. Uh, I think mostly it's because they're both encoded by the same type of neuron, so small diameter C-fibers, right? Yeah, so they have the same structure, the same size, same conduction properties and I think uh, when you do early recordings and you record from C fibers and you get itch or pain, I think that led to this idea that pain was, or maybe it was before, maybe it was, I don't don't know the history of it, but you know, before modern neuroscience, people probably just thought of itch as a A little bit of pain, pain, right? And I think that biology sort of backed it up for, for a long time. Right, and I think molecular tools allow the dissection of these different pathways. And if that's too quiet, right? Mm-hmm. So now, so now, yeah, and then de- de- identifying specific receptors for pruritogens and separate pathways that help differentiate the two different types of neurons. I don't know. What do you think? Is that true, Lindsay? <laughs> sounds good. Yeah, I think so. it sounds good to me. So is it an intensity code or is it a population code? Like two different sets of neurons that then have... Well, I guess for, have- I think for our rudimentary model, it's, I guess it's intensity coding via population, right? Mm-hmm. So you have selective recruitment based on intensity of stimuli. I think most typical itch in mammals is not intensity code, and it's driven by a specific activation of puritic receptors or that respond to uh, specific chemicals that are uh, cause itch, right? And that's leaving aside mechanical itch, which I think is it's a whole other type of itch that I don't understand oh, quite as well. What's the like difference? Like a tickle? Yeah, like a tickle itch, right? If you have something crawling on uh, your skin, right, that right. will you'll itch it, right? And right, right, right. you know, I think some of the researchers now they in the mouse they they couldn't really get mechanical itch behaviors, but except for now they can poke on the ear and you get a in the, and you'll get a scratch behavior. Is it because they have they're so hairy? I mean, I'm like, I'm yeah, the ear like they, they don't have quite as much hair, and so then you can get a little. 
Yeah, maybe. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, maybe, maybe I have all the short hairs yeah. under here. As you, I age, I have more. If you more shaved more. or had nude mice, maybe. If, I wonder oh, yeah, maybe if you would. would. Try to, if you could do a tickle assay in a, in a nude mouse and you could get it to work or not. Yeah. I mean, I think differentiating, you know, what's itch behavior, you know, it's all human defined, right? It's very subjective, I'd imagine. I don't imagine it is subjective. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, mechanistically, there are these complicated interactions, right? So there's like this antagonistic thing where pain can inhibit itch. And then there's also these weird paradoxical things like, like mu opioids can actually um, induce itch, right? I mean, that's right. Yeah. And I think that's because they're acting on specific spinal neurons, right? So I think, what is it? The kappa, kappa receptors. I almost got this backwards. I probably shouldn't even say it. Yeah. <laughs> but right, certain opioid uh, receptors will trigger when you activate or block. Well, uh, it's, it's a, this is Sarah Ross's stuff. I think she's done a lot of it. Um, but so you right. So I think that's more central, not peripherally yeah, mediated. Right. Okay. So you have got this zebrafish model for studying pain and itch pathways and their intersections and interactions. Right. And, um, Tell us about that. Well, I think we got into it because uh, as a postdoc, I studied cold sensation, uh, which is mediated mostly in mammals by trypamate. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we almost thought there were other cold receptors out there. Um, and zebrafish don't have uh, ortholog of trypamate, so they're sensing cold via a different mechanism. Mm-hmm. Um, and we thought we could just do a genetic screen and we'd find the cold receptor. <laughs> we did not. But in the, in the meantime, we sort of defined uh, uh, us and others, uh, maybe Alex Shearer from Harvard, uh, was defining the populations of somatosensory neurons. So as we were doing this, I wanted to know, well, you know, is the zebrafish a good model system to study pain and the circuitry of pain? Are there different subtypes of populations, because one of our worries was that maybe there's just one kind of uh, somatosensory neuron or nociceptive neuron in larval zebrafish, because maybe they just need rudimentary uh, sensation, just anything that could be dangerous I need to avoid, and so maybe you could have one kind of neuron that responded to all the different noxious stimuli that a larval zebrafish might encounter. Fortunately, that turned out not to be the case, that they do have a diverse set of neurons, you know, within 48 hours. So I think, I don't know, maybe we've classified at least 10 different subtypes, you know, at least by, by molecular marker uh, expression. So they seem to have this diversity of neural subtypes very quickly in development because these fish have to, within four days, survive in the wild. So they're functioning animals. So while they are developing into something, you know, into a mature zebrafish, they're not, it's not like they're just developing outside of the body and they don't have to do anything. They have to function and survive just like uh, the rest of us do. Um, so maybe that drove that's really important, um, the development of nociceptors. And that was one thing we discovered is that as opposed to mammals, nociceptors just develop first in zebrafish. And then we believe maybe mechanosensors come on uh, later. So that seems like maybe that process has been inverted between uh, fish and terrestrial vertebrates. But it would be interesting to look in 
reptiles or something, right? Yeah, but um, other non-mammalian. Yeah, some other non-mammalian system, and see where where it switched. But I guess most of them they develop an egg, right? And, yeah, yeah. So they're, so kind of, they're they're already fully not formed. In, they're yeah. not out in the environment. Yeah, no. So yeah, so fish are sort of yeah they almost unique. I mean, I guess insects also have to. Yeah, they're larval stages, but they're functioning animals, right? So right. they have to be able do all the things needed to survive. So I guess they're unique invertebrates that way. I guess if you think about it. <laughs> so, like in the in the zebrafish, you you do G-camp imaging. You can see responses right. to pain. Have you seen cold responses in your trigeminals? Uh, yeah. So yeah. we want to do that. We're going to do that. Yeah. But we we haven't done it for. So a variety of dumb reasons. <laughs> Just, uh, Dis all dissociated preps, right? No, no, they're all in, they're all intact yeah. animals. Yeah. So everything's done in a whole animal, okay. and then well, we can paralyze them. So mm -hmm. we can we can isolate neural activity to whatever the stimulus is and whatever that motor response would be if they could move. Right? How do you tell the motor response then? We can't. I mean, I mean, I mean, I guess you could. You could say, "What's a motor?" what's a motor part of the brain uh -huh. and what's being activated okay. brain. So we can look at, if we knew the anatomy better than we do, but if we <laughs> other, uh, other zebrafish neuroscientists uh -huh. could then maybe look at neuro, you know, motor output, yeah. right? So we can, we can know just by circuitry what we think is a ferret input and then motor output you could sort of define. I think that's an awesome system because, I mean, you can see... Yeah, the neurons in right. vivo in an intact animal right. without you know having to open it up or do anything like what I have to do. <laughs> yeah, so that's an advantage. I mean, and then the technology is marching forward uh -huh. in the mouse that I know we don't never get entirely there, but we can record from a lot of neurons. And not myself, but you know others uh, can uh, can do it. Yeah, so that's great. And then you can you know with a higher computer processing power now you can just do GCAMP imaging on every single neuron and you can do it fast enough um, that you can see you know if you believe GCAMP imaging is a true reliable indicator of neuronal activity uh, you can see that all in real time yeah so that would be sort of the perfect experiments right where we do real-time activity and then do all our manipulations and we could even in the same fish we could go through all the different temperatures and all the different stimuli and see what happens, right? So I think that's what we're moving towards. I think everyone's moving towards doing that kind of uh, research, right? So, so what's, but what's kind of cool is that the readout in these animals that you found, is, is this something that you discovered that fish itch and pain response is actually so different, like completely different? Or is that something that's been known? No, yeah. We were the first ones to look at it. I think maybe because we were the pretty first cool. ones who cared about it. <laughs> but it's pretty interesting. I mean, because Yeah, I thought like, it would just be a tool, right, yeah. that we could then start labeling different circuits and seeing how they were wired up. Okay, right? so tell us. Tell us what fish do when they're in pain versus when they're itching. So you use a well, fluidic exactly. agent yeah. versus a pain agent, the mustard right. oil versus the IM. If we inject it peripherally into their lips, uh -huh. um, they'll start rubbing or scratching their lips. I mean, so this is just what we're deciding that they're doing, right? Um, and versus a painful stimulus. Uh, Against the freezing. side of the tank is what we're, not yeah, with their it, fins or something. Yeah, not with their fins, yeah. We tried injecting other places, but it was really difficult. And we tried um, putting objects in the tank that maybe they could rub against, but they were almost very fearful hmm. of 
of any object that we put in, and so they'd freeze or they'd avoid it. And then, well, I mean, I think we could have done other experiments where we tried to acclimate them and they do it, but we didn't want to do that. And, and it's just, hard. And yeah. you have a, your your time when I guess you're doing these in adult fish, so yeah, you have so, a little bit more. Time yeah, so the adult fish the, we could do it for the zebra for the larva. We tried to put like sand, you know, in the in their little arenas to see if they'd rub around on it, but we couldn't. They seem to much to stay away from anything that was novel. Um, so, so we settled on this lip assay because people had done it previously for for painful stimuli. So they had seen that behavior before, and so we just wanted to see if we'd see something different, right? And luckily, so if you inject we AITC in the lip. Yeah. They just they just sink freeze. to the bottom. So that's they the freeze. difference. They but it's concentration it. dependent. Right? Uh huh. Yeah. So yeah. you know, depending on how you wanted to look at it, you could just say that. You know, we decided it was scratch itching because it also, we saw the same effect in mice, right? But if we just, um, it could be just a different form of pain behavior. Mild pain versus. Right. I mean, I don't know. I can't say for sure. I'm just, <laughs> I use the transitive property <laughs> to say that, it, that it's probably, it looks like itch. We decide itch in mice looks like itch because we, we observe them doing a behavior that we think is scratching and it must be elicited by itch compounds. And because the same puritics that cause us to scratch cause mice to scratch, right? So we say that must be itch sensation. Um, so I guess we're saying the same thing in zebrafish. Uh, for us, it was just really a tool to figure out what was going on in the mouse too, right? And then so once we saw that we had the same, that our model held up in the mouse, then that helped us maybe call it itch, right? But we know it's itch. Well, I don't, yeah. I, I don't want to say that we know that it's itch in the mouse, but it looks a lot like itch. But, this, the, but the agonist itself is some like LT receptor. I don't know what that receptor is. It's a TLR7, a toll-like So that's, TLR7 is, most, is expressed in immune cells. And so immune cells are a big driver of itch behavior because they can, uh, dump histamine and serotonin and other things that cause uh, itch. And there was actually some controversy about the role of TLR7 and imicamod, which is the chemical that causes itch in our assay. Uh, whether imicamod evoked itch was dependent on TLR7. Right. And so, what you guys found is it directly activates these TRIP-A that's one right. channels, right? right? Which right. Are known so we think seven. there might be a role for TLR7 in mice that's upstream of neural activation. And so you can imagine a scenario where imicamod activated some subtype of immune cell and that led to the release of histamine and that could activate a histamine receptor and then you would get itch, right? But that would be an indirect pathway, whereas our pathway and then whatever's happening in the zebrafish is entirely dependent on TRIP-A1 expressed in peripheral neurons. So, so, yeah, so there's cool. a big there's a big difference right between the, these different types of itch right there's mm -hmm. like the immunopathic right. or, or yeah inflammatory yeah. itch right. and then this you know, direct right. neural activated itch pathway right and I think the most common is, is through immune right it's sensing right so like if you get a bug bite and you yeah. have this giant inflammation and you're itching it yeah our itch is kind of more of a trick 
it's a beautifully reduced prep that's all based around this trip A1 activity. Right. So you've got two agonists and two different, two, two agonists on this, this trip A receptor directly activating it, producing two totally different phenotypes. And I mean, that's, right. uh, and you've really harnessed that. To, yeah, I think so. And I think it's interesting. I think it's like sort of from an evolutionary perspective, how did itch arise? Right. I don't think it was. I don't think it arose at the same time as pain. I think pain probably preceded it, and then itch arose somehow. Right. And it probably needed to become more specialized uh, in terrestrial animals. Yeah. So, right. it, what what is the adaptive uh, nature of this, this? So mechanical, as you can imagine, you just have to get something off of you, right? Because there's something crawling on you. Right. But this sort of thing, it's like something you've been pricked by a thorn that has some chemical on it, and then you start activating your immune system by scratching around it and causing, I mean, like, what is the, is there some, like, what, how, how does that bear itself out? Does that speed healing? Does it speed? I don't know. Circulation? I think it makes it worse, right? So yeah. you're not supposed to scratch it. So it's actually like a maladaptive yeah. uh, <laughs> sensation, right? For removing parasites, yeah, that's very important to, like, to do that. But why have this chemical derived itch yeah i don't know if there's a good answer right and then there's people that have like extreme itch reactions that like makes their lives miserable yeah if you have atopic dermatitis right chronic yeah you get chronic itch and yeah it's it's horrible right Mm -hmm. in some ways maybe it's worse than chronic pain i don't know they're probably equally horrible but yeah yeah. (laughs) (laughs) they're both all you know terrible conditions for those uh that suffer from them right so so if you could find a way to prevent it, that would be um, amazing, right, for most people, right? So I, th- I think a lot of the itch efforts have been focused on immune system, right? But if you could silence the pure receptors somehow, then that would be another way of doing it. Because then if you have, I guess, I mean, there's, there's the two pathways. So it's like the total like receptor and the, the puritanergic activation on the, the neuron itself. Right. Um, and but but in mouse, right? You were able to get rid of about half of it, and you're thinking maybe there's total leg receptor still activating. So the, potentially, potentially, right? right? But then, so like, yeah. So if you found a, a drug that treated that puritanergic receptor, do you think that it would it would still be able to like prevent you from getting the inflammatory portion, or you would just be stuck with the inflammatory portion without the neurons, like kind of initial. Yeah, maybe, but maybe it would resolve quicker. Quicker, yeah. Right, because I think then you get neurogenic uh, contributions back to the inflammation. So right. Sort of like I know, because then, then they start then they start releasing all the you know inflammatory <laughs> right. soup stuff. Which is nice. Right. Yeah, I think a lot of this. I think it all for me. A lot of it was the sort of label line that sort of led me, you know, into looking at these different subsets of neurons, right, to see how, to get the idea of how, how are different modalities wired up to the brain, right? And for zebrafish, if everything was the same, that was going to make it difficult for us. That was really sort of drove identifying different populations. So but we then, haven't made but, that step yet. But, but yeah, but then now you're still kind of like, you're, you're like halfway there, but then there's this yeah, trick, it's right? Yeah. It's, it's both trip A1. Yeah, so we can, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so then it's a, it throws a So we have to right find in. other markers. Yeah. Right. 
So, so do you do. think that do you think there is like a molecular uh, kind of code that will separate out your two populations of you know your your low your low threshold uh, itchy guys and the right. high threshold pain guys? Yeah, I don't think so it's. Expl- st- I don't. We should, we should probably talk a bit about the threshold. But anyway, go ahead, uh-huh. answer that, and then we'll go, we'll backtrack a bit to the. Yeah, I don't think it's stochastic. Right. Mm-hmm. It doesn't make sense for it to be stochastic. Right. Why should you have randomly tuned neurons? That doesn't make sense. So, because how could that be helpful? I mean, you, or, right? So I think they're tuned for a reason. And if we look in zebrafish, if we label trip-A1 neurons and look at their, how they innervate the body wall, we see classes of trip-A1 trip expressing neurons that tile. So they're afferents repulse each other if they don't have any overlap. And then we see other neurons, other trip A1 expressing neurons that completely overlap. Oh, that's really with interesting. Other, right? So we are trying to figure out how many different populations there are and how they're tuned. So we can take this, the same fish that I talked about that expresses this neural activity marker Campari, which photoconverts from green to red uh, when it's active. And so if you, instead of looking at the cell bodies, which I showed in my lectures, and you look at the afferents, um, you can see red afferents overlapping green afferents from different neurons. It's really difficult to do. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, getting the numbers, and we're making, trying to make new transgenic lines with brighter Campari so we can, we can see it. Um, but yeah, so, because what you really care about is what's going on in the periphery, right? what's being active. And the zebrafish, all their afferents, they shoot out of the trigeminal ganglia and then they display out right on the surface of the skin. So they all target the same place. So they're not targeting uh, different areas of the fish. We can see where they're all targeting. So it's not like some are deeper mm-hmm. than others. They're, they're all at the, basically at the same level. So they're all getting the same input. And that was the only way that it made sense to me, that you'd, if they were... In the, the along the other way, if you had, they couldn't be just, you know, innervating separate parts of the fish, right? Do you have an itchy part of the fish right. versus the pain? Right. So, so the then pain. you would predict, right, that you would only get overlap within within the itch plus the pain, but not right. pain on pain and not itch on itch, right? But now I think there must be pain on pain. Pain too. on pain too? Yeah, right, because the, the, the itch is like at one extreme, right? And then I have all these other neurons that have different response properties to are painful stimuli. So why is that? Why do you have... What if we said like the itch neurons were like the 5%, you know? So why do we have spread across the other 95% of the neurons? Um, So then I think the intensity of pain coding is also a population question. Which, then, is, which always made me interested, like back in the Patapudian lab, right? When we had the subpopulation of, of trip A1, trip V1, double positive DRG right. neurons, and then another population that were trip V1 alone, not trip A1. Right. Like, what are they doing differently? Um, and what, is that, like, what does that give you? I mean, the trip A1 gives you ability to detect all these really kind of noxious compounds in general. Right. Trip V1 is much more sensitive to heat and, you know, few compounds. So is it is it only hot plus pain, or is it is it AAA one the only pain neurons, or is it some weird combination yeah, of I all? I think the, the ones that have multiple receptors on it are just general polymodal nociceptors. Yeah. So their sensation is pain. 
I think the, some of the trip V1 ones could just be temperature. Temperature, yeah. Right, and so that's a different modality, right? So why, because why would you have all these different receptors that signal, because you have, you could have cold receptors expressed with trip V1 too, and a heat receptor. It only makes sense to me that the output is just the same output, it's just pain, right? So, and then the other neurons are modifying that experience. So you know something's hot and painful because you're activating some neuron that only responds to the heat part. And then you have other neurons that respond to the pain, right? And that drives the pain feeling. And cold pain is the opposite. But the burning part, I think, is the same, right? That right. burning painful sensation is maybe the same. So it's the, it's the additive properties is what I think gives you discrimination, maybe. And But yeah, so but then why have all these different two neurons? I guess you could have different parts of the bodies that are different, have different sensations. But even in the mouse, if we label all the neurons that innervate the paw, we get the same spread. So we see it in vivo in zebrafish, and we see it in vitro in mouse, and maybe the in vitro part of the mouse is, that's an artifact, but it's a consistent artifact. So it seems like there's, has, there's something different about those neurons in other ones. So now we're trying to do it in vivo, right, with uh, like an in vivo trigeminal prep uh, so we can look at activity in an intact mouse, right? And then we can see if we see the same intensity spread, and then we can see whether the different signaling pathways contribute to that spread, or if it's just something like the number of channels, right? It could be anything, right? It could be the number of channels, it could be the gain set by signaling pathways, it could be the number of sodium channels and potassium channels and chloride channels that whatever said uh, determines the resting membrane potential. Any of the things that might contribute to sensitization, right, could be different. We don't know. We're trying to figure it out. But you think it's PLC? I think PLC is part of it, yeah, right. I don't think it's the only thing. Like, uh -huh. Why would you have neurons that have a 600-fold difference in expression of trip A1? Right. But it's the same for all receptors. If you look at TRIP-V1, MRGD, or even if you look at some sodium channels, they're different, right? I think a long time ago, people would just say it's stochastic, but that doesn't make sense. Well, like, I don't know why is that either. That's not a good answer. I don't know what that means. But I don't know, what it, I don't know if that difference in RNA translates into a difference in protein, right? So I guess I'd be figuring that out, too. But I don't think any of these things are accidental. Yeah, and yeah. then like what's what's controlling that overexpression or, yeah, or underexpression? Exactly. Right. Those yeah. Specific exactly. Things. And what are the, yeah? Why are they coding? Right. Yeah. But then why would you want to have differently tuned mouse receptors, unless it's some way of of encoding intensity? Right. I think in the auditory system, so spiral ganglion neurons, they can be tuned to the same frequency, but you have ones that respond at different intensities. So I think it might just be a common. Uh, motif that's replicated across uh, the sensory nervous system, maybe. Got to check my taste cells. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, right. How do you? How is the intensity of taste? Right. Exactly. It's weird. Yeah, we don't like at the at the ganglion level. You really get very little difference in intensity if you use you know a huge amount of sucrose or very little amount of sucrose. If it's enough to like trigger the taste receptor cell, right. you don't get a whole lot of different, like there's not that much recruitment of more neurons, there's not much 
like variation in the you know the GCAMP responses are pretty stable with right. in different dose responses. So doing a dose response in the ganglion is almost like futile. <laughs> you know, like right. it's like you don't get much. But we obviously have the ability to tell the difference between a low dose of sucrose and a high dose of sucrose. Right. So if something's happening, I just don't know what it is. Right. Yeah. Are you using what kind of G camp are you using? Fast, six, six low. Yeah, so maybe you switch to six, six fast, six fast, yeah. right? And then you might be able What's to the see. What's the difference? So it's a temporal. It's, yeah, you can you can see a little bit more of like the the temporal dynamics. With slow, you just let it you know it just meanders its way back down, so it, it doesn't right. release the. So it's really good for seeing signals. Yeah. Right. Because it's kind of like additive because it, it, right. it, it they'll accrete up onto the the G camp and more calcium will bind and you'll get a larger signal, but the off rate is fairly slow. Right. With the fast, the off rate is quick, so you you don't end up binding as much calcium, but you'll be able to see if there's you know, more or less. In theory, you can see yeah. the so same rate of action potentials. Right? Theory. Yes, right. There's a, there's a seven now? I don't know. Yeah, there's, there's a like, seven. Yeah. yeah. I think there's a seven. <laughs> right. It's already keep up. That's right. <laughs> yeah, by the time you've made your animal, it's, 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 uh, it's already two, it's two generations <laughs> gone. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> well, you can only do what you can do. Okay, so you want to talk about some um, drug discovery using zebrafish, small molecule screening, and right, your yeah, sensitization, right, yes. acid, thermal preference. Right, so we decided that um, that analgesic discovery is a big problem, um, and there hasn't been very many, or maybe zero, good uh, target-directed analgesic. Development. So we knew what the receptor was or knew what the target was. We made a drug against it, and then it worked in humans, right? I think there's been some notable failures, uh, like, uh, I guess, the NGF receptor, right? And then analgesics-directed drug strip V1, though maybe those might actually work, but nothing's come uh, uh, to the forefront yet. And so we decided that well, we knew that the, our best analgesics were uh, discovered by their properties in humans. So humans found opioids, and they found NSAIDs by eating different plants, right? And it relieved their pain, and they had no idea what the target was. They just knew it worked, right? So, And those are still our best analgesics. Um, but we knew that you can't conduct these kind of experiments in, say, a mouse model because you don't have enough animals, and you don't have enough people, and you don't have enough money, right? And so it's really impractical. But in zebrafish, they're tiny, they're small, they're vertebrates, they have a fully functioning nervous system that looks a lot like ours, um, but obviously different. Um, and we can screen lots of them at any given time. And so we wanted to develop a preference assay, so we wouldn't just be looking at locomotor behavior. Um, so we wanted to know that whatever they were avoiding, if we found an analgesic, would lessen, right? And so they were making a choice, right? And that's a big hallmark of uh, sort of a good nociceptive assay in a mouse, for instance, or for any drug development where the animal has to make a choice versus just some locomotor uh, behavior, because that it indicates superspinal processing, right? And so uh, the brains are involved. Um, and so in zebrafish, we just de de uh, devised the simple choice assay based on uh, 
we'll just be for simplicity's sake, uh, a noxious temperature versus their rearing temperature. And then with this assay, uh, we showed that analgesic drugs, known analgesic drugs, uh, reversed, reversed it. So we were pretty certain we were looking at a nociceptive uh, assay that could be useful for uh, finding molecules with analgesic properties. Whether they be purely analgesic, we didn't know that, but we know they would have that. Um, so um, what we did in a pilot study was screened a 10,000 compound library, which seems like a lot, but in drug discovery, 10,000 compounds is basically virtually nothing, right? In, in drug discovery and industry, you're, you're uh, surveying millions of compounds, but you're often doing this. Brute force. Yeah, it's a brute force, and you do, and you, but you're doing it in, in a cultured cell or something, so something really easy uh, to assay, but here we're assaying a behavior, and I think we could scale it up to millions of compounds if someone had the energy and the desire to do such a thing. But we did the 10,000 compound screen. Uh, it's easy because you just deliver the drugs in their water. So you don't have to inject them. You just put them in their water and they go, and they're, and they're systemic. So they go everywhere. So the whole zebrafish gets exposed to the drug. And so you'll know if it'll kill the zebrafish mm -hmm. or do any of these other things. And you can see if it affects their behavior and you can track their locomotion and where they go, right? And so from doing a 10,000 compound screen, we identified three compounds that seem to have replicated uh, their effects that have analgesis, and we're pretty sure that this technique could work. Whether any of these compounds would ever be useful, uh, we don't know that yet, but one of them that we found out, followed up on has, uh, has analgesic properties in the mouth, so we think this will work. Um, and then one of the compounds that we found that we were really interested in seems to actually reverse uh, their preference, so the our fish now prefer the noxious heat over the rearing temperature, which we think is really strange, but sort of really interesting um, that it's having this effect, seeing, suggesting that their circuits, and I think many people say in the dopamine field and <laughs> knew about this all along, that there's maybe valence centers uh, in the brain, and so this drug can somehow modulate one of those uh, centers to uh, reverse how they, their preference, right? And, but it's doing this across multiple uh, modalities, not just uh, pain, but also uh, anxiety-inducing versus, versus non-anxious environments. It makes them go to the anxiety-inducing environment uh, too, which is really interesting, right? So uh, right now we're trying to identify the target and um, understand how it's how it's working right and so we have some ideas but i think they're too early to to discuss do you but, see these anxiolytic changes with this molecule in mice you've been doing any of that because that's fairly uh, easy to yeah it is easy to do well yeah we are doing it i've been talking to a lot of people about it and mm -hmm. a lot of people have different opinions about how easy these assays are <laughs> do i thought they were really simple you just put them in open field and if they go to the yeah, exactly. if they go to the middle then we found it but uh I, there are some investigators who who don't think open field is quite that simple. Um, but yes, we are doing that the first pass. Yeah, yeah, we're doing it as a first pass, and we're doing some other assays, and maybe we'll do some light dark boxes. We can do the same assay in uh, mice, and that should be pretty easy. So as long as we get the timing right, I think it sh 
we'll find out if it, if it works, right? So um, we're pretty excited about that. So, so if that works, fingers crossed, and then we, we ID the target, then we'll be, we'll be in good shape. Okay, super. Thank you for joining us, Ajay Taka. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's been fun. Yeah, great. This has been Neuroscientist Talk Shop. Okay, bye. <laughs>